While Chuck is on sabbatical, he is not just taking a break, not just taking a vacation. Rather, as Tad prayed, he is resting and preparing himself and reuniting himself with the source of his ministry. That is his relationship with, with Christ. So I pray that you would also pray for him and that you would pray for his family, that they would come back renewed and refreshed and ready to resume the rhythms of weekly church life. Since he's gone, I get to preach to you this morning, and normally it's our tradition to preach through sections of the Bible sequentially. Uh, That forces us to address issues we might otherwise avoid. Uh, It forces us to preach passages we might otherwise not hear. And this morning we're going to continue doing that as we're in 1 Samuel. I'll be reading in 1 Samuel chapter 21. If you have no Bible with you, there's a blue Bible in your chairs in front of you that look about like this. And our passage is going to start and end on page 140, so you can flip there. Uh, If you have your own Bible, get that thing open. Don't take my word for it. That's just not a good idea. My hope is that as we look at this passage this morning, we will see how God blesses humility, particularly the humility of his anointed one, and how he opposes pride, particularly through his anointed one. I'm going to start with just the first six chapters, and hopefully that's weird enough for us, and we can go on and read weirder stuff later. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter which I send you, and with which I have charged you. So I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, do you have, do you have, excuse me, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. So it's always fun to start in a chapter in the middle of a narrative under circumstances that make almost no sense to us right off their face. So let's stop for a moment and look at what's going on in the passage, what led us here, and we'll go from there. First, who are the players? We know David. I hope we've been talking about him for a few weeks. Ahimelech, though, this is the first time he has made an appearance. He is the great-grandson of the prophet Eli. He's the brother of Saul's primary chaplain, whose name I won't pronounce. He's a descendant of Aaron, a Levite, and an important priest in the city of Nob. Which leads us to our next logical question, where on earth is Nob? The first, this is the first time that it has also appeared. Nob is a priestly city just a few miles outside of Jerusalem and Gibeah, which is Saul's home base. When Shiloh and the sons of Eli fell, this became the new priestly hub and place of worship. Though the Ark of the Covenant continues to be hidden in obscurity in another town. Now on to what's happening. In this story. Well, in the preceding chapter, David receives confirmation from his good friend Jonathan, the the king's son, that Saul, in fact, intends to do him harm. And they communicate in such a way that he knows it's time for him to go and avoid danger. 
So when David arrives in Nob, the nature of his flight is revealed. He is on the run and will continue to be. He is alone and he is unprepared for the flight ahead of him. It's immediately apparent to Ahimelech that something is off, that something's not quite right. We're told that when he greets him, he's trembling. And while he may not have been physically shaking, he certainly was afraid. This is a common way of phrasing that. Maybe he's heard of the conflict between Saul and David. With the incidents of last week's message in chapter 19, the domestic matter between David and Saul has become more public and certainly more political. But I think Ahimelech's question reveals the nature of the peculiarity that he senses. David at this point is not the kind of person who would arrive unannounced and would arrive without an entourage of people, without a guard, without someone in his company, and yet he comes quietly and alone. He arrives without the announcement and the pomp and circumstance and resources and power that Ahimelech would have expected, and it strikes him as odd. David's hasty flight from the king has left him without even basic provisions. So after an awkward and dubious conversation, which we'll come back to the nature of, David asks for some food. But the only bread on hand is the bread that has been offered in sacrifice. It's left on the altar for a week and then replaced and consumed by the priests. But David is not a priest. He's not a Levite. David and Ahimelech would have both known that David was not welcome to partake of this bread. Leviticus 22:10 to 16 lays out some of these rules. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. There's no biblical precedent, there's no legal basis for the exception that Ahimelech makes. David and, I believe, his fictional men are not permitted to eat the bread, and there's no amount of purity from sexual interaction that would have made them so. David makes a request that's not lawful, and Ahimelech offers a solution that is equally questionable. So to recap how we've arrived here now, David has arrived in a panic, told a series of lies. That's what they were followed by a request that because of the circumstances, he knows is unlawful. And to him, like the priest, responds with a solution that, though expedient, is equally not biblical. I think what I would naturally expect the next chapter of this story to be is God's wrath raining down on the violators of his laws. In the form of the belly of a whale or of the fire and brimstone that would consume Nob for its profaning of the holy things. And yet, that's not God's response at all. In fact, not only is that not God's response, but Christ specifically cites this circumstance to defend his own actions and make significant claims of lordship and authority. As an example, Mark 2, verse 23 and on says, One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, as, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck grains, heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful 
for any but the priests to eat. And also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse three goes on and tells another story that's found with this one. It says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, the Pharisees, it is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now this story is found in all three synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Not only is it found in all three gospels, it is strikingly similar in all three gospels, and in all three cases it's followed by the story of the man with the withered hand. Christ defends the actions of him and his disciples by citing David's eating of the bread of presence. Why does Christ link these two events, these two issues? What do the bread of presence and the Sabbath have in common that Christ would have brought them together so forcefully? I believe that ultimately it's because both issues are fundamentally about humility before God in his provision and in his sanctification. In order to observe the Sabbath, his people had to rely on his provision for one out of every seven days, one out of every seven years, and every 50th year. These rules were not arbitrary, and they were not fundamentally about taking a break, taking a vacation. The Sabbath and Jubilee's years were about why we are able to rest from toil and work. God rested in the creation because he knew of the perfection and completeness of his own work. He did not need a day off. He was not exhausted. His power was not depleted by the action. He rested because he understood that it was done and that he didn't need to do any more to complete it. This was intended to be a model for us to find refuge in God's perfection and his providence for us. Similarly, when it comes to the Levitical priests of the Old Testament, they didn't own any property. They had no way of making wealth. They were reliant upon God to provide for them through the offerings of the people. Those offerings were strictly dedicated to the priests to show God's faithfulness to them and their commitment to wait on him for provision. Furthermore, for the people to tithe the first fruits, just like us, required their confidence that God would continue to meet their needs despite that offering. The issues of Sabbath and sacrifice are complex and they're, they're beautiful pictures with dimension and with lots of, of details that we can learn about. And this is certainly just a glimpse of them, just one one angle, one shade of them, but it's doubtless that both require humility before God in his provision. Additionally, the two ideas are bonded by God's sanctification of common things to make them holy, to make them set apart, to make them devoted to his purposes. 
The Sabbath was a day that was not special in and of itself. It was special because God made it a day dedicated to him to remind the people of their humility before him. The priests were similarly set apart and required to be ceremonially clean as a reminder of our separation from God and our unworthiness before him. Their Levitical blood and their lineage did not make them holy. God's unmerited selection of them made them holy and unique for their purpose. The food offered to God was similarly set apart by him for the provision of sin and for the provision of the priests. It was not magical food. It was sanctified by God and separated for his purposes. And only those servants who were likewise sanctified were to partake of it. Yet David was allowed to eat of the bread of presence. And Christ and his disciples plucked grain and healed the sick on the Sabbath, both without penalty or repentance. Why? What are we missing about the law that that are in these circumstances. In Matthew 5, Christ affirms that the law is not, is not changing, is not going away. In fact, he says it's going to be upheld. He finishes those comments in verse 20 and says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. No one would have known the law better than the scribes, and no one would have worked harder to follow the law in its every painstaking detail than the Pharisees. This is what their reputation was built upon. So how do we become holy? How do we become more holy and more righteous than those who know the law best and work the hardest to follow it? And it's worth stopping here for a moment to address another question that comes up as we look at this chapter and those that follow. And that question is, was David's actions in Nob good or were they bad? Was he acting righteously or sinfully? Was there a better way or a different way that he should have handled these circumstances? It's impossible for us to read this story and not, and not think that. But David was placed in an impossible situation where there were no clear biblical solutions that he could refer to. David did things that seemed prohibited by the law to escape circumstances. And, and we can relate to this. The reason we're so concerned and consumed with this question is because we want to know for ourselves. We and those we love and counsel run into circumstances that seem unfair, that seem unreasonable, and are not specifically dealt with in Scripture. I can't pull up the Bible app on my phone and copy and paste the verse that says, don't do this, into a text message and solve all their problems for them. And I want that. I want to look at every situation biblically and in my life and be able to quote the verse that answers what to do. We want to find a loophole for our friend to escape a seemingly hopeless marriage or a reason to be unequally yoked with someone that we really, really, really like despite their lack of faith and calling. We want to know how to counsel a friend whose son came out. We want to do and counsel others to do right things. We want to know, or we want to know whatever we do will be accepted as long as it's done in the name of love or mercy or kindness. This consumed much of my study on this passage, much discussion about it, and much ink was spilled by commentators with whom I consulted trying to answer the question of were his actions right or wrong? Is he the devil or is he Christ incarnate in these passages? But the conclusion that I ultimately reached is that this is not the primary issue that God calls us to consider in these passages. 
without a clear guide on what to do in these specific circumstances, over and over again, we're going to watch David and those around him make choices in the heat of a moment. Some of them will look brilliant, and some of them will look unfortunate. Some of them will look wise and some foolish, some faithful, and some sinful still. Too often, we do the same thing with ourselves and the people with whom we witness. We become so obsessed with the rightness or wrongness of our actions that we forget to check what's driving those behaviors. We're convinced that those that do good are good and those that do bad are bad. And that's not how we should read this passage or live our lives. We, consum- we, begin, excuse me, we become so consumed by following the rules that we forget why they're there. When a child's told not to touch the stove, there is a good reason for this rule. But an adult who follows that rule without thought or understanding or consideration will be a hungry adult indeed. Instead of questioning the rightness or wrongness of David's actions, really the question we should be asking is, what does this passage tell us about the nature and character of God? What does the apparent exception teach us about the law and its purposes as we grow in holiness? I don't believe that David or Ahimelech intended to make any grand theological statements. I don't think that they could have understood in the moment how the Messiah would later quote this event to acquit himself before the Jewish leadership. Yet God saw fit to providentially place these men and these circumstances here at this time so that he could teach us this lesson and so that Christ could refer to this. If we look back at the purpose for the Sabbath rules and the sacrificial system, we see that both issues are fundamentally about humility before God. To go back to Christ's question in Mark 5, how then do we become more righteous than those who know and follow the law? How do we become holy and devoted to God's glory as he is? My answer to you is humility. As Chuck said a few weeks ago, there is no middle ground upon the realization of who God is. We are either humbled by his glory and his stature before us, or we rebel and deny his identity. I believe that how we become holy is humility before God, displayed by our faith in his provision and our acceptance of his unmerited work of grace in our lives. I believe that the reason that Christ and his disciples could work on the Sabbath was because of their humility and submission to God. I believe that the reason that David was allowed to eat the bread of presence was because of his humility and submission to God. It can't be argued that Christ was anything but humble before God. Likewise, his disciples had abandoned their lives to follow him. They plucked grain and ate on the Sabbath because they had nothing else to eat. They did not pick the grain because of their rejection of God's provision. They picked grain because of their, they relied on it entirely. They picked grain because the lessons of the Sabbath were fully rooted in their minds and in their hearts. They did not violate what God set apart. They were what God set apart for his purposes. In the same way, David surrendered his life to the service of God and his anointed king, Saul, even when his anointing was withdrawn. When he fled, he did so with nothing. When he arrived on Himlech's door, he was not stealing from God's table for his personal greed or gain. 
He was reliant upon God for his very provision of daily bread. He was not violating what God had set apart for his purposes. He was what God set apart for his purposes. Now, some of you who know the rest of the story are probably twinging just a little bit, thinking David is not always the model of humility. And I couldn't agree with you more. When he arrives on the battlefield where Goliath is defeated, his brothers instantly identify him by his arrogance and his not belonging, but assuming that he belongs because that's who he was. He will make spectacular mistakes. He was a multi-talented musician and writer and warrior. He, he was the ultimate Renaissance man. If this didn't lead him to a little bit of arrogance, he wouldn't be human. And yet, despite that ability and that, those skills and those talents, there's a constant recognition of God's work in his life. David is not perfect, but he's a man chosen by God who gives his life for that purpose. Repentance marks his sins, along with his sins. Thank God that my life does not receive the same scrutiny that David's did, where every action I take is, is scrutinized by right and wrong. Certainly, I wouldn't stand up to even his failures. Furthermore, in this particular time and place, what does David's life look like? Is, is this his moment of arrogance? Is this his moment of, of regal forthcoming? No, he's on the run with nothing. He's committed years of service to Saul, and up to this point, we've seen no evidence of his opposition to Saul. And yet, Saul seeks to kill him. So he runs and goes to great lengths to protect God's anointed king, who is still Saul. How might the last few days look different if I'm David? Would I have run with nothing? Or would I have rallied the troops loyal to me, stomped on Saul, and claimed what was rightfully mine? I have to think that what I would have done was take, take the glory, take the position that I thought it was my turn to have. Saul, the anointing has gone off of Saul. He's a jerk. He's trying to kill me. All of his accomplishments for the last 10 years have really been mine anyway. I should probably go ahead and take credit for all that. But David goes to great lengths in chapter 20 in his communication with Jonathan to avoid accidentally involving even a messenger. To avoid bringing anybody into the web that would eventually result in death and destruction. In his meeting with Ahimelech, certainly he could have told Ahimelech what was going on and fought for his recognition. But he doesn't. He attempts to protect Ahimelech, I believe, by not involving him. And that will still have consequences. For this reason, I'm further convinced that there was no one with David. David would not have brought a retinue of soldiers or guards with him to force a confrontation or to put more men's lives in danger for a feud between him and Saul. And yet, if you were reading with me just a moment ago when we read Mark 2, Christ clearly says that he ate the bread and gave some to those who were with him. 
If you read things in the Bible that don't seem to line up, please wrestle with those things. Don't assume that you don't understand. Please try to figure out what you're missing. And I did that for weeks on this particular point. Because I I believe that chapter 21 clearly shows that he was in fact alone. And yet Christ clearly says that he was with people with whom he shared the bread. Certainly soldiers would not have been worthy of the sharing of that bread. So who was with him? And it becomes important now to read these passages in their context. If we fast forward a little bit down to chapter 22, and we read just verse 2 of chapter 22, it reads, And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them, and they were with him. About 400 men. These are the men whom I believe Christ refers to. These are the broken and the destitute and the humble with whom God would have happily shared his table. And I believe that's who Christ refers to. And we see them praised and blessed throughout Scripture. We're going to read a passage in a few minutes that that talks about that. But in the remaining time, I want to continue to read chapter 21 so we can get through. If you will go to verse 7, it says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doug. Now when my daughter is reading and she struggles to pronounce a name, my encouragement to her is no one is going to know that you're pronouncing that name wrong. So just pick a way to pronounce it and go with it. So Doeg, or whatever we're going to not call him, he's just going to be Doug for me. So whoever gets to preach next week, you can choose how you want to pronounce his name, but he's going to be Doug for me as we read along. So his name was Doug the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, "Uh, then have you not a spear or a sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword or my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here but that. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. So, real quick now, what's going on? Who's, who's Doug, first of all? Well, Doug is an Edomite. He's a foreigner. We don't really know a lot about Doug other than he was probably the spoils from a previous conflict. And the chief of the herdsman translation is is a difficult translation. All we know for sure is that he's loyal to Saul and will very likely tell Saul David's location and what transpired. And this is serious enough that it, it concerns David that he decides it's probably time to go. Furthermore, why doesn't David have a sword? Well, again, this is not a David who planned to meet with men in another location. A David who, who set up a rendezvous at such and such a place, which is another awesome translation, this is not a man who doesn't come with his sword. And what mission could David possibly have been on as a soldier that didn't require a sword? There's just more evidence that David fled. He ran quickly, hastily, without a lot of forethought and plan, and not to start a fight. But he senses he's in danger, And despite David's apparent lack of planning, God has not left anything to chance. In verse 6, we read that he had been given the bread because there was no bread there but the bread of the presence. 
Now in verse 9, we're told that he must receive Goliath's sword because there is none there but that. As believers in God, we don't get the luxury of luck or coincidence to govern what happens in our life. God is sovereign over everything, and the sword of Goliath is the very sword that we last saw opposing Saul and exposing his weakness and his cowardice and his fear and his lack of faith. Now that symbol of opposition is in David's hands. Though David will wield it very differently, and David will continue to seek to protect the life of Saul, there is no question that the anointed one of God stands in opposition. The passage that I read in Mark that he quotes this incident, Christ is said to have looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. There were none that Christ opposed more directly and more harshly than the proud rulers and the proud Pharisees. And ultimately, Herod. The last six verses of the chapter are another tale in what not to do. I'll read those 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish came to him and said, Is this not, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Just when I thought I would make it out of this chapter without anything really strange happening, we get this. David flees with Goliath's sword to Goliath's hometown. If you don't remember that that's Gath, that's Gath. The fight that launched his military career and the sack of foreskins that made up his dowry came at the expense of these people. We aren't told why he chose Gath but we can speculate that he figures it's one place that Saul certainly will not follow him. Maybe not a terribly well-thought-out plan. Some have suggested that he went there to recruit the Philistines for his cause against Saul, but I see no evidence of this. He sought to involve no one, least of all those who would oppose the people who he will one day rule. And he acts crazy. Is there significance to his acting crazy? But we're back to asking, was this a good or a bad decision? Ultimately, what I see in his craziness is humility. Not, not wise humility, but humility just the same. Humility that didn't demand his place. He probably could have recruited the Philistines. Had he told the Philistines, hey, I'm here to guarantee your victory over Saul and the Israelites. You don't think they would have lined up behind him? No, instead he acts crazy and escapes with his life. In his experience in this chapter, David foreshadows Christ's life and serves as a type of signpost, an illustration of something to come. If we go to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 3, we read, 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we have saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. There is no shortage of parallels between David's life and Christ's. This is what it means to be a type of Christ. This is what it means to be the true and better David. When we hear the greatness of God's anointed one on the lips of Philistines and foreign wise men, outside of the borders of Israel, we know who he is. When we see God's anointed one arriving in Nob and arriving in Bethlehem without the pomp and circumstance and power and authority we would expect, we know who he is. When we witness a proud king and a people unable to see the anointed one for the fulfillment of their blessings rather than a threat, we know who he is. Later in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 15, we read, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When you hear phrases like there was none there but that, there was none there but that, repeated, perk your ears up. When you hear phrases like he rose up and fled, perk your ears up and think, where else have I heard that? Get Google out, do what you gotta do. When we see the anointed one flee from safety, David in the humility of his solitude and Christ in the humility of the flesh of a human child, we know who they are. When we shudder at the thought of the anointed one fleeing into enemy lands because they're safer there than with their own people, we know who they are. When we count the days until the anointed one can return after the death of the, the proud king, we know who they are. Though David was clearly not clearly God's anointed one, it's also clear that he lacked the perfect wisdom that Christ would carry. Confusion, fear, and sinfulness will cloud his judgments, but he is blessed because of his humility before God and God's unmerited choice of him. David looked back and wrote a rich psalm about this time in his life. Much like last week, I encourage you just to listen as I read Psalm 34. It says, of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look at him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who, who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off their memory from the earth. When the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous one, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David truly made some terrible decisions, and these won't be the last of them. But even as good judgment ebbed, he remained humble before God. He understood who God was and who he was. David's humility before God promoted him to the throne of Israel at its peak of glory and faithfulness to Yahweh. Near the end of Psalm 34, David providentially points us forward to Christ and his redemption. And he tells us that the righteous one will suffer many afflictions, but none of his bones will be broken. Christ perfectly embodied humility, taking on helpless flesh and perfectly submitting. And suffered afflictions owed to the wicked despite his very deserved glory. Christ's humility before God raised him up to the true and eternal place of power at the right hand of God. God does not oppose oppose the proud or give grace to the humble, generically or impersonally. Verse 16 states that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And many other passages tell us that the authority to judge the living and the dead has been given to Christ because of who he is and what he's done. Verse 22 likewise tells us that none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We cannot see the true God for who he is and remain neutral. We will either be humbly, humbly blessed by a loving God or separated by our pride and inability to see the anointed one for who he is. If you're here this morning and you don't know what it's like to take refuge in Christ and to receive that blessing, I beg of you, call me or tap someone on the shoulder next to you. Take the blue Bible that's in front of you. It's a gift to you. Please take it and read of it. If you're here this morning and you are a person of faith, I beg you to shed the arrogance of your good works and your bad works. I beg of you to shed the credit for your good works and the condemnation of your bad works. Don't use the commands of God to judge yourself Rather, use it to expose where you have rejected God's rule. Be a people who are blessed not for your right actions, but for your humility before God and your recognition of who he is. This is the gospel of what Christ wants to do in your life. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we're so thankful for passages that challenge us, for passages that are complicated, Lord, that we might know you better and that we might find refuge in who you are and that we might be humbled by your strength and your power and your rule over our lives. Thank you, Father, for Christ's actions and for your unmerited grace towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.